Hey, good morning, everyone. Just as a quick favor, if you guys have your Bibles, uh, if you can open up your Bibles, we're going to do a lot of uh, whatever this is called. We're going to be doing a lot of that. And uh, if you guys have it on your phone, if you guys have your phones handy for that reason, uh, to fire up your Bible apps, that would be nice. Um, the reason why I say that we're going to do a lot of flipping uh, in the Bible today is to, this passage, it's three verses. Um, but this passage carries layers and layers of Old Testament illusions. And I think it's well worth our time to understand these illusions, to not only understand uh, the audacity and scope of the claims that Jesus is making here in these verses, but also important for us to understand so that we might apply it to our lives. So this is how we're going to break up our time together today, just for these three verses. Initially, I want to go over the background um, of what's happening in John chapter 7 as Jesus stands up and proclaims these famous verses. So if you can uh, take a look at the first half of verse 37 with me, it reads, On the last day of the feast, the great day. And so the question immediately for us should be, what feast? Which feast? What is he talking about? Well, that's told to us in the earlier portion of chapter 7 in verse 2. In verse 2, it reads, Now the Jews' feast of boots was at hand. The feast of boots, or as it was often called, the feast of tabernacles. And verse 37 tells us that it is the last day of that feast. Now the feast of boots, the feast of tabernacles, was one of three great Jewish feasts that the Jewish people enjoyed. And it was originally a spy God from slavery in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. And after that, they spent 40 years, partly due to their disobedience, wandering around like nomads. They lived in temporary dwellings. Until 40 years later, they would finally enter into the promised land. And they would be able to build their homes. And as a result of their wandering, God wanted them to remember. Even after they entered into the promised land, God wanted his people to remember their years of mobility. He wanted them to remember their years of homelessness, their years of exile, the years when they lived in these temporary homes, these tents, until God had fully delivered them into the promised land. God wanted them to recall the years where they were tested, where they were tried, but also where they were carefully and faithfully taken care of by God, who had given them everything that they needed. And so these people, when the Feast of Boots was at hand, they would gather all these branches and twigs from the surrounding trees, and they would build these little homes. They would build these little boots, these tents, that they would live in for an entire week. And they would do this to remember their history, to remember when God had saved them from slavery, to remember that God had looked after them. To remember his mercy and his grace. That was the background to the Feast of Boots. That's the background to the Feast of Tabernacles. But that's not it. That's not all that happened during the seven-day feast. In fact, during the seven days of the feast, each day there were different rites. Every single day, the peak of the day was the pouring out of the water by the high priest onto the altar of God, where sacrifices would be made. So it looked like this. The high priest would take this golden jug, and he would dip the jug into the pool of Siloam. And he would carry this full jug, and he was followed by this procession, and he would 
the high priest would walk this jug all the way into the temple. And there's this group of men, this choir following, that, following behind them. And as he's making his way to the temple, there are three loud blasts from a trumpet. Three loud blasts from a trumpet called the shofar. And the shofar was not a trumpet just to make noise. It was an instrument specifically designed to proclaim joy. An instrument specifically designed to, to celebrate. It was not an instrument you would play at a funeral. It was for joy. Three loud blasts of the shofar. And the priest would walk around the altar of God with the golden jug in his hand. And a choir behind it would sing these psalms called the Halal Psalms. Specifically Psalms 113 through 118. And as they approached Psalm 118, every male Jew in the city would be carrying what we call a lulav which is just a combination of all these different kind of twigs wrapped around in palm. And he would carry it in their right hand. And on the, in their left hand, they would be carrying a citrus fruit. And all of this was a remembrance of how God had provided for his people in the past. The entire ceremony was to remember how God had provided for them in the wilderness. How God had provided them water from the rock. And even now, how God continued to provide, year after year after year. And as Psalm 118 came to a close, all the male Jews in the city would cry out three times, Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. And then the priest would take the water in the golden jug, and he would pour out the water onto the altar of God. And every single Jewish person in the city, they recognized the symbolism there. They understood what was going on. That the pouring out of the water onto the altar of God symbolized that, yes, on one hand, God had saved them in the past. Yes, on one hand, God had provided for them all that they needed. All that they needed to survive back then and now in the present day. But they also understood it was symbolic of what was to come. It was symbolic of a deep hope that they had of God. It was a hope rooted in God's promise to his people that one day he would pour out his spirit amongst his people and he would fill the earth like water with his presence. And so when the priest was pouring out the water, the people would garner this hope in their hearts. Because they understood what it represented, that there was a time coming, a time of abundance, a time of vitality, a time of flourishing and thriving, a time of overflowing life, highlighted by the very presence of God amongst his people, where God himself would come down and his presence would overflow the whole earth in his overflowing, abundant glory, associated with the coming of their Savior, their Messiah. And oh, how they longed for that day. They thirsted for that day. And so in that way, this feast, the Feast of Boots, the Feast of Tabernacle, was a feast of looking backwards in thanksgiving. But it was also a feast where they looked forward in anticipation for the life that was to come. A life in the presence of God.
And as the priest is pouring this water out, as the Jew is watching the water being poured out onto the altar of God, it is on the last and greatest day of the feast. And I wonder if it's at that exact moment where Jesus stands up and he says in a clear and loud voice, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. They are watching the water being poured out and he says, if you are thirsty, if you are waiting for this day, come to me and drink. You have this ceremony, you have this water, you are thirsting for that day, eagerly waiting for the day for your thirst to be completely satisfied, eagerly waiting for the day for the presence of God to fully come into your life, for your life to be filled with abundance and vitality. You are waiting for your Savior. You're waiting for the Messiah, for life in his presence. Come to me and drink. The Israelites knew immediately what Jesus was saying. They knew what he was doing. They knew what he was claiming to to be. For all the Jews, all the Israelites were steeped in Old Testament scripture that connected water to life, specifically life with God, the life that would be associated with their Savior, their Messiah to come. Take a look at Isaiah 12, 3 with me if you can. It says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You can hear that metaphor running through there. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah is written. Take a look at Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for which that does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, and eat what is good. And so the Israelites are watching the water being poured out. They're in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. They're in the midst of the Feast of Boots, eagerly waiting in anticipation for that day when the Messiah would come. And Jesus has the audacity to stand up and proclaim, that time is now. The time is now. Come to me and drink. Now, Jesus isn't saying anything new, not to us anyway. He's only reiterating what he has already said about himself in John chapter 4, in the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. If you guys remember, he tells her, everyone who drinks of this water, the water in the well, they will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. What is Jesus claiming here both in John 7 and John 4? He's saying it's over. It's done. I'm the one. I'm the one that you're waiting for. I'm the one that is fully going to satisfy. I'm the one that can satiate that thirst that you've been so desperately trying to quench. Those other things that you run after for the hope of satisfaction, for the hope of fulfillment, for the hope of happiness, for the hope of contentment, the perfect home, the newest toys you think that will make you happy the family, the career, the position that you think will finally bring you peace, those things, those things will make you thirsty again. Those things will leave you empty. Those things will leave you dry. Those things lead to death. Come to me and drink and have life. It is only if you come and drink from me that you will have life. 
and it's common, run-of-the-mill life that Jesus promises here. It's an overflowing, abundant, eternal life. Both John 4 and 7 attest to this. John 4 says in the rest of verse 14, the water that I will give to you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's not just a little, it's, it's just overflowing in you. John 7 verse 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The promise here is that if you drink of Christ, if you take what Christ brings to you, if you take what Christ provides, it is a life of abundance. It is a life of vitality, a life so full, so overflowing, so abundant, that out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. That's what we have. That's what we're called to partake in. You know, to be honest with you, I'm preparing for the sermon this week. And I'm thinking and I'm praying over the text this week and I'm thinking about what, what is this? What is Jesus saying here? And to be honest, the earlier portion of the week, I, I found myself being pretty discouraged. I was like, what? Rivers of living water? Where is that in my life? I don't see it anywhere. Where do I go and who am I influencing so well that how, do, how much life do I have in my heart that it is flowing over and influencing all these people? At best, I thought, maybe at my very best, on my good days, there's a little sprinkle. It's like, mm. There you go. Sprinkle of encouragement for you. Sprinkle of joy for you. And it's not eternal or overflowing or fresh living water. Most of the times it's stagnant. It feels lukewarm. And I was thinking to myself, how can I stand up there and talk to them about rivers of living water flowing out of our lives when I myself, it's hard for me to feel that way. But as the week progressed, I think to leave this passage feeling this way, feeling discouraged, would be to misunderstand greatly the hope, mercy, and grace that John wants to see here. What do I mean? Well, if you can track the flow of verse 37 through 39 with me, take a look at your Bibles. In verse 37 and 38, Jesus establishes himself as the fulfillment of all things entailed in the Feast of Booths, in the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, that's me. I am the one who will meet your deepest needs. I am the one who will fully satisfy with the water that fully satisfies. I am the one that will save you. And he says, come to me and drink. And if you do, streams of living water will flow from within him. That's 37 and 38. But take a look at verse 39. There's an explanation given. By John, a qualifier, a clarification. Verse 39 reads, by this, this, referring to the streams of living water that flows out from us, he meant the Spirit. This, referring to the streams of living water, John continues, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. So the rivers of flowing water flowing out of the believer or the spirit had not yet been given. 
Not yet. Now, what John cannot be saying here is that the spirit was a mysterious entity that they had no idea who it was. It's not like John is writing a little play and he writes the Holy Spirit in here. He's like, voila, Holy Spirit, someone, it's just an entirely new character you have never heard of. Let me introduce you to him. That's not what John is doing. It can't be. Because the Israelites had heard of the Holy Spirit. They had experience with the Holy Spirit. After all, the Israelites in the wilderness had been led by the Spirit of God. But what I think John is referring to here is that maybe that the idea of the Spirit not fully being given just yet, not fully given until Christ, you don't need to be a Bible scholar. You don't need to go to seminary to have heard the language of newness that comes with Christ. When you have Christ, there's an abundance of a language of newness that comes with him. It's, it's all over the New Testament. Take a look at 2 Corinthians verse five, or chapter 5, verse 17 with me. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. John chapter 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says, you must be born again. There is a new birth that awaits you. There is language of new life, new covenant, new age, new birth, new, 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 everywhere in the New Testament. And I wonder if that's what's happening here. Yes, the Spirit has been around. Yes, he was present. Yes, his presence was made known and felt by God's people. But not like this. You haven't had the Spirit like this. You know, as you move through the Bible, there is a ratcheting up of God's gifts to his children. What do I mean? What I mean is that God's gifts to his children as you move through the Bible just gets better and better and better and better. Let me explain. In the time of Moses, God makes a promise to Moses and to his people. And this is the promise that he makes them. Take a look at Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12 with me. You've probably heard this promise before. The promise says, and I will walk among you, and it will be your God of God. That he will be our God, that we will be his people, and that he will dwell among us. That's language of presence. That's presence language. And in the context of Moses, in the context of that time, God promised that he would enter into a relationship with them, and that he would dwell among them, that he would be present among them, that he would live with them. But how would that look like? Well, for the Israelites in the wilderness, it was the tabernacle. God resided in the tabernacle. Can you look like that? It's a mobile tent. God resided there. His presence was there. But more specifically, it was a room in the tabernacle. Not just the tent in itself, but a specific room. And the room was called the most holy place, the holy of holies. And who could get into that place? Who could have access to the presence of God? Well, only the high priest. 
and only once a year, and even then only with the blood of bulls and goats. And yes, the people had access to God's presence. His presence was in the tabernacle. But you had to be careful. You couldn't come too close. Your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell with them. My presence will be with you. And it was in the tabernacle, in this particular way. Eventually, the Israelites, they are come out of the wilderness. They go into the promised land. And God says, again, the promise, I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will dwell amongst you. How does he dwell amongst them now? In a more permanent residence, in the temple that Solomon creates for them. He says, my presence will be with you. I will reside in this temple. And so we fast forward to the time of Jesus. There's no more tabernacle. How will they feel his presence now? How will God dwell amongst his people now? Well, John 1.14 tells us, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's presence now is felt as Jesus, God in the flesh, physically walks amongst his people. His presence is felt that way. That's in the time of Jesus. And yet, in verse 39, as we read it, for John, there seems to be another level. Another ratcheting level up of God's gift that was yet, yet to be seen. They have not seen yet, specifically a life that was to come. A life of one where our hearts would be overflowing with living water. The life that comes from Christ. The life that he provides. Not yet fully realized. As per verse 39 tells us, why not? Because the spirit has not yet been given. So what does that look like? What is John referring to here? You know, in John 14, verse 15 through 18, Jesus reveals to his people what life will soon look like, what it will be like when the Spirit is given. When Jesus reveals to his people, this is now how I will dwell amongst you. This is now how you will feel my presence. If you look at John 14, verses 15 through 18, it reads, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And here's the kicker. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. His presence, God's presence, Christ's presence will be made known to us because we will dwell with him, because he will dwell in us. The spirit of truth, the spirit of God, the spirit that causes our life to be overflowing with rivers of living water. What is he talking about? He's talking about the very presence of God in our lives. And that's the promise to us, that he will never leave us that he will now forever be with us, forever present with us as he dwells in us. But how can this be? How can God, the perfect God, through the Holy Spirit, be given to someone like me? 
be given to someone like you? How can God, the Holy One, come and dwell and be present in a sinner like you and I? Well, verse 39 tells us that the only way it can happen was because Jesus was glorified. In John's gospel, Jesus' glorification, the outward of his glory, it's very clear. It takes place when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, when he is crucified, when he conquers death, resurrected from the tomb, and finally lifted up into the presence of God, into his glory at the right hand of God. For God to dwell in us, for God to be present amongst us through the Holy Spirit in every waking moment of our day, for him to be present with us in our seasons of joy, for him to be with us in our seasons of pain and suffering, for God to be present in us, there was no need for the blood of bulls and goats. But there was the blood of Jesus pouring out from the cross. There was no need for a high priest to mediate on their behalf on a yearly basis because we were spoken for by Christ on the cross. We are advocated for. We are bought. Jesus bore our sins. He dies our death. He rose to newness of life. He sits at the right hand of God. And because of that, you and I can dwell in the presence of God. What does that look like for us, though? You know, a couple weeks back, Pastor John, he spoke on John chapter 6. If you guys don't remember, if you guys can turn your Bibles with me there. He spoke on John chapter 6, verse 16 through 21. And I really struggled with the passage that week after hearing P. John's sermon. And the heart of his sermon was about the storms of life that was the life that you would feel fear, anxiety, doubt. And to be honest, I struggled that week because I struggled with so much anxiety. So much fear that week. I, I just, I, I had a hard time. I was anxious, struggling with not knowing what was about to happen. My mind kept racing over all these possibilities of what would happen to my family, what would happen to me, and all these things. And I was just so scared. I was so terrified. I struggled with not being able to be in control. And in the midst of my anxiety and fear, I kept repeating to myself, don't worry, God's in control. Don't worry, God's in control. Don't worry, God's in control. And I knew that in my brain. And I was frustrated with myself because I heard, heard this sermon from Pastor John about how God was in control and that we should not fear. And as I was looking over the passage again, I realized that the disciples' fear that it ends when they recognize that Jesus is the Christ. But at the specific moment when he, he walks into the boat with them. When he becomes present with them. When his presence is made known to them. And I love the language that John uses. It says, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Once Jesus stepped on the boat, they're there. They're where they need to be. And as I thought about that, the presence of God being in my life, I kid you not, just overflowing peace. 
Nothing changed. I was still not in control. All the uncertainties were still there in my life. I had every reason to be anxious, but I was where I needed to be. I was in the presence of God. Biblically faithful Christianity teaches a lot of truth. Teaches a lot of knowledge. And I think about our Urgevine family, and I don't think knowledge about Christianity is something that we struggle with. It's not knowledge that we struggle with. Christianity is not just knowledge. It also provides experience of God, the presence of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit, who in the wake of what Jesus has done for us sometimes makes us ashamed of the things we say and do and sometimes makes us ashamed of the things that we don't say or don't do. The presence of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit gives us a glimpse of how wonderful holiness can be. It convicts us of our sin. It, sh- it shows us the emptiness of our pursuits for satisfaction in these worldly things. And it also comes to us and it renews us. It gives us new birth. It's an experience that we go through as we enter into a relationship with him. Not only as individual believers, but corporately as church family. When the Spirit's presence comes into our lives, it helps us, as John 14 says, to become believers who forgive and love one another. The presence of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit helps us live lives that are rich, abundant, overflowing with life, overflowing with vitality, and it is all secured, all given to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me end here. I don't know all the stories in this room. I don't know all of you guys. But I am sure that there are some in this room who have never closed with Christ. You know with knowledge, but you don't know experientially what John is talking about. And I beg of you, where you sit now, lift your heart heavenward toward him and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Christ Jesus, I come to you and I drink. Pour out your spirit upon my life. I want your presence in my life. There are some of us in this room like that. And for those of us in this room who have walked with Christ a long time, let's come back to him again and again and again and discover that once again, as individual believers, yes, but also as church family, that when we have Christ, we never thirst. Let me pray and close our time together. God, we want to thank you for this time and we want to thank you for your word. God, we want to thank you for the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. 
that you bore our sin, that you died our death, but not only that, that you raised into heaven and are presently sitting at the right hand of God in glory. And we want to thank you, God, that you don't leave us behind to navigate through our lives by ourselves, but God, that you come to us with your presence. And God, this week as we live our lives, would you help us to remember that? Gently remind us of your presence in our lives. And we thank you for all the things that you do for us. We love you. Help us to love you more. We pray all of this in your son's name.